Well, good morning. It's good. Uh, the kids can leave for Children's Church. And as they go, if you will turn with me to Isaiah chapter 56. We will be in Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar." For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please pray with me one more time. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. This morning, make us hungry for this heavenly food and let it nourish us in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. Well, in recent years, uh, a new epidemic has begun to spring up in our country. It's an addiction that affects all ages, from teens to retirees, And the favorite place to feed this addiction is outdoor tennis courts. Yes, pickleball is growing so rapidly in America that there aren't enough pickleball courts to satisfy the demand. From rec centers to apartment complexes, the sport is so popular that existing tennis courts are being renovated and converted into pickleball courts by the thousands. And traditional tennis players are not happy with the encroachment of the new sport, often petitioning city governments to save their beloved tennis courts from the barbarian hordes of pickleballers. And when this doesn't work, they resort to more sinister tactics. The police in Springfield, Illinois, have been called out to the same pickleball courts multiple times to investigate spray-painted profanities directed at loud pickleballers. In a community rec center in England, each pickleball net had been cut down just two days after opening the courts. And in Santa Rosa, California, vandals spread motor oil over the pickleball courts in retaliation, along with notes promising to scratch the cars 
of any pickleballers that would dare to use the tennis courts. In each case, police suspect angry tennis players. And the message is clear. Traditional tennis players believe that the courts belong to them. After all, they are called tennis courts, and pickleballers are unserious, noisy pretenders who are not welcome. Pickleballers, on the other hand, are generally the easygoing type. They long for inclusion in these courts. They're not here to replace tennis. They just want to play alongside the tennis players. Aren't the courts big enough for both racket sports? All right, I have pushed the analogy far enough uh, that you can see the parallel. This morning, God's words in Isaiah's mouth set up for us a similar example, although the stakes are much, much higher. Instead of tennis players and pickleball players, we see the foreigner and the eunuch longing to gather in the courts of the Lord for the worship of God. And we'll see a God who delivers comfort, promise, and hope to them. But first, Isaiah begins with a message about the future in verses one and two. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So God is saying, something's coming, but don't worry. Uh, It's as if Paul Revere in his midnight ride said, the British are coming, but have hope in the Lord. You know, gird your loins, but do not fear. And the central message of Isaiah is right here uh, in verse one. Soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. So it's not that the British are coming, but God's salvation and righteousness are coming. And these sound like wonderful things. But these phrases meant very particular things to God's people. Revealing righteousness would mean that the day of the Lord is here. The day when covenant blessings would be poured out to God's people and covenant curses would be applied to all that opposed God. Covenant curses would be poured out to the ungodly, and these would be catastrophic flood-level events on the earth for all who went against God. So the day of the Lord meant that salvation and wrath would come in a moment. But this text doesn't focus on the spectacle. Instead, we hear instructions. In light of the great and terrible day of the Lord, what should we be doing? Well, verse 1, keep justice do righteousness. Verse two, keep Sabbath. Keep your hand from doing evil. And the result for the people of God is this happy word in verse two, that they will be blessed. The man who acts righteously will have nothing to fear in the day of the Lord, because he will receive blessing and not curses. And this shouldn't be surprising for us, because it's the same for us. We can be eager to see Christ's return in glory, if we know that we will be blessed and not cursed when he appears. But this feeling of blessing is not shared by all. So we're given insight into three different groups, the Israelites, the foreigner, and the eunuchs. And they all held different feelings about the day of the Lord. And we don't have to guess at their feelings. Uh, The text tells us, 
Israel is the blessed man that longs for the day of the Lord. The foreigners were anxious about the day of the Lord, and the eunuchs were terrified. So why did Israel long for the day? Well, because they were going to get the covenant blessings. They were going to get land that they could never be moved off of. Uh, The Messiah would come from their seed, uh, and then they would rest from their enemies forever. The Lord would restore their fortunes. Well, as excited as the Israelites were for the day of the Lord, why were the foreigners anxious about it? Well, the word here for foreigner is closest to a proselyte, a person who has become a member of the Jewish synagogue without being ethnically Jewish. And keep in mind where we are in times. This last big chunk of Isaiah is prophecy about the time after the return from exile that many foreigners began to worship the Lord along with the Israelites during this time. And large numbers of these foreigners would choose to return to Jerusalem alongside them. And so this position of being a foreigner was a controversial one within Judaism, and many leaders were not willing to grant foreigners similar rights given to other worshipers. We see this actually play out in Ezra chapter 4. After King Cyrus has allowed the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls, rebuild the city, and rebuild the temple, some of the foreigners that traveled back with them offer to help. So we've got a lot of men. We can help you rebuild this wall. And their rationale is that they've been converted. They put it like this in Ezra 4, verse 2. Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. And the response from the Jewish leaders in verse 3 is, no, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. And this is not an isolated event in the Old Testament. We could look at Isaiah, or Ezekiel 44, where the mere presence of a foreigner can profane the temple. And this kind of sorting and separation continues long into the days of Jesus. Remember when he approaches the temple courts, he observed what was so familiar to these foreigners separate courts for worship, separate meals, separate invitations. And on one hand, this is real progress. They still get to enter the temple grounds. They still get to worship. They still get to make sacrifice. But it's a far cry from the prophecy here in Isaiah 56. The distinction between foreigner as a pagan threat and foreigner as faithful to the Lord is not always made and honored. There were ongoing suspicions after the exile that all foreigners would remain faithless and pagan forever. So you can see how they're caught between separation and inclusion. Do you remember when King Solomon dedicated the new temple in 1 Kings 8? The central portion of his prayer was that this place, this temple, would be a place where God would hear the foreigners' prayers. And so they're wondering, when is this going to happen? Of course, they're anxious about the day of the Lord. They don't know if they're included or not. Will they be blessed and counted alongside Israel, or will they be cursed as not belonging? And the Lord knows their anxiety 
He anticipates it when he says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. If the foreigners are anxious, the eunuchs are terrified. They have it much worse than the foreigners. At least the foreigners were allowed on temple grounds. Deuteronomy 23 prohibits eunuchs from gathering with the assembly of God. A eunuch at this time was anyone whose reproductive organs had been ritually mutilated or removed. And this practice violated the clearest teachings of Genesis, that as long as we are able, we ought to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and not sabotage our abilities to do so. And even further, it was almost always done among worshipers of pagan gods, so it was automatically idolatrous. See, among pagan temples and pagan courts, eunuchs were highly desirable because you could trust them, they thought, to make careful decisions. They had been set free from hot-tempered decision-making and could focus on the finer details of advising and governing, or so they thought. So they were most often eunuchs by force, not voluntarily. And so they're in a worse position than the foreigners. Until now, until this verse, there is no similar movement or prophecy about inclusion of eunuchs. And yet, the Lord singles out this group for reassurance and hope. The day of the Lord does not mean that you will be cut off from my house. Your lack of children does not mean that you have no place or contribution in my kingdom. And there's a wonderful irony uh, we see in the book of Acts in chapter eight. Do you remember when the the Ethiopian eunuch asks Philip to help him uh, understand a scroll that he is reading? Do, Do you remember what he was reading? He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. Specifically, he's in chapter 53. And so Philip comes alongside him and explains that Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. And the eunuch believes and is baptized. And this is complete speculation. But I'd like to think that he kept reading a few chapters if it was available to him. Did he realize that he was the fulfillment of this prophecy? So in verse three, the Lord is calming and reassuring each of these groups of people. And now he will go on to say why. Why is there hope? Verses four and five. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So why should the eunuch not fear? Well, hope comes in the form of distinctions to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, to the eunuchs who choose the things that please me, to the eunuchs who hold fast my covenant. This isn't a blanket approval of all eunuchs everywhere, just as the gospel spread in the New Testament isn't a blanket approval of all Gentiles, but to those who join themselves to God in devotion and love, you have nothing to fear. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. 
And so here our Lord promises blessings to the eunuch that precisely meet his fears, a monument and a name. We'll start with monument. Uh, The word here is a designated place or space kept as a memorial for someone. God is saying you have a place here in the temple. The fear of being cut off, having no lineage, was a strong fear. If not children, what was his place in this world? This is a question that haunted Absalom, David's son. We can read about him in 2 Kings 18. Uh, In this story, Absalom has just died, and the narrator tells us this about Absalom. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Do you hear his fears? I need to do something to cement my legacy. Without heirs, I need to build something concrete to know that my life mattered, that something of mine will outlive and outlast my own body. And it is the same fear that we have. How, when I come to die, will I prove to myself and to others that I mattered? And no conversation about legacy, no bucket list, no endowment or statue can truly scratch this itch of ours to establish by our own hands a lasting symbol of our own significance. Only God can give what will truly last. And so God says, I will give you a monument. I will give you a dedicated place in my house. What a gift. Sometimes at a football game, you can pay extra money for your ticket. And if you do, uh, somebody will go before the game and will set up these padded cushions where you're supposed to sit. And that designates that these seats are yours, kept for you, saved for you, and made comfortable for you. And that's Jesus, by the way. Not at every football game, but that's what Jesus does for us. He does that as the first fruits of the resurrection and the forerunner before us into God's house. And he does this not because we pay him, but because he loves us and cannot wait to present us with great joy in his father's house. And we should never stop wanting this place. We see a picture of this in Revelation 3. John is seeing into heaven and receiving prophecies about the seven churches. And he receives words that are remarkably similar to our passage in Isaiah 56. He gets information and then ethics about how to live uh, and then future details. Here Jesus is talking in Revelation 3. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers... I will make him a pillar, it's that word monument, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. See, what the eunuch wanted 
is ultimately given in Jesus who plants us forever in the house of God, in a temple that cannot be destroyed. And it's not just a monument, but it's also a name. If the monument addresses the fear of not having a place, the name addresses the fear of remembrance. When I am gone, how will I be remembered? And God says, I will give you an everlasting name. And this is perhaps a bigger need for the eunuch than having a place. With no lineage, what happens to my name? My name will be cut off from the earth. I will not contribute to Abraham's great vision of blessing all the nations. And if no one on earth can remember me, can I expect God to remember me? This one is much closer to our own struggles. These questions create dark nights for us and can lead us into deep despair. Does God know my name? Will he remember my name? Maybe I have sinned so much that my name is forgotten. Maybe I'm so insignificant that my name is meaningless to him. Job, in the middle of his suffering, expresses this kind of fear when he exclaims, oh, that my words were written, oh, that they were inscribed in a book, oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Take comfort, Jesus knows your name and he will not lose any of the names. Your names are written, literally tattooed, on the palms of his hands, according to Isaiah 49. In Revelation 20, your names are written in the book of life. Here's what Jesus, praying to his Father, says about your names in John 17. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. And here's how strongly Jesus guards your names in John 10. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Your name will not be lost in Jesus. Or maybe my fear is that I will forget the Lord in my dying days, and so he will forget me. Maybe I won't remember the Lord. Maybe I won't remember myself. And if I can't remember what the Lord has done, Will he remember me? More practically, if I develop any of the memory-affecting diseases or experience severe cognitive trauma, what happens to this relationship that I have with the Lord? If Alzheimer's or dementia robs the sweetness of a life lived with Jesus, what happens? Is it my memory that matters or is it the Lord's? Again, take comfort. It is God that stands forever, and his covenant love holds us in perfect memory. Remember, the thief on the cross did not say, I'll remember you as I take my last breath, and that will function as my faith. No, he said, you remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Remember that it was scandalous to speak of a crucified man. Crucifixion was intended to erase the memory of a person, much like the position the eunuch finds himself in, that his own legacy will be forgotten. The thief knew he had no legacy to speak of, so he turns to the one whose memory matters. Some among us have met Jesus in death without remembering their own names. And sadly, perhaps more will follow, but it is not our work of remembering that secures our place and our name in God's house. It is Jesus, the pioneer of new life that remembers us, and he does not sleep or forget or lose his hold on us. He gives to us this everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And yes, this is a play on words meant to reverse the core fear of the eunuch. His lineage may be cut off, but his name will be preserved by being joined to the Lord. So just like our own fears are calmed in Jesus, the fears of the eunuch are calmed by his word. He, like us, will receive a name and a place in God's house, and he can rest in this life and serve the Lord with joy. And then we come to the foreigner in verses six and seven. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And again, God makes a distinction between the general category of foreigner and foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, who keep the Sabbath, and who holds fast his covenant. And this is a difficult list to live up to, but it's no more difficult than what God requires of true Israelites. And what is the reward for this kind of foreigner? It's full inclusion. It's a welcome to the holy mountain of the Lord, a welcome to God's house of prayer. It's joy. It's an invitation to sacrifice alongside Israel, tennis players and pickleballers in the Lord's courts together. And so just as God speaks mercy and assurance to the eunuch, he speaks comfort to the foreigner. You will not be left out. You will not be cast away on the day of the Lord. Remember, Israel imagined their future kingdom as a perfect mountain, dwarfing all the other mountains and descending over their land called Mount Zion. And on this mountain, the Lord would establish his throne and spread out a feast And all of Israel would camp around this mountain, but the foreigners had no place around it. And so God tells us that a time is coming when they will be gathered without distinction at the mountain and in God's house. Now we know that this has actually begun in Christ. In the New Testament, Paul uses metaphors, plant images, to talk about vine Uh, or a tree or a plant, 
to describe God's people, where the Gentile believers are grafted in to true Israel because of their faith. And having been grafted into the Lord's plant, there is no distinction in the fruit. Faith is the entrance, and Jesus holds the whole structure. And so just like the eunuch, the foreigner's fears are turned into hope. And they say, I can be included in the Lord. All is not lost. And finally, all of this movement in the first seven verses lead us to verse eight. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So this pattern of gathering will only get stronger in Jesus. The Lord says, look how I have gathered these outcasts, literally the ones who have been cast far from home. I have brought them home and I will keep bringing others home. I will gather still others. This is true for their upcoming return from exile, but even more true in Jesus. Jesus, when he arrives as the new and better Adam, declares that he is here to declare and extend the Lord's favor. He will put into practice what Isaiah only imagined here. He preaches repentance and faith in Israel, of course, but also in Galilee and Capernaum and Samaria and farther. And then he sends his disciples even farther out into the Gentiles. And then the spirit of God pushes this gospel to the corners of the earth, always gathering, always gathering the lost into the church. And you might say, well, that's fine for them, but why will I be gathered up? I know my sin. I deserve to be cast out, uninvited to this house. And the answer, of course, is Jesus, because Jesus ultimately has won this divine welcome on our behalf through his own death by perfectly doing all that he asks of Israel here. He has kept his hands from evil in verse two. He has kept Sabbath in verse four. He has pleased the Father and held fast his covenant. He has loved and served his Father And finally, he offered himself as the righteous life on their behalf and allowed himself to be cut off to atone for the sins of his people. The New Testament puts it like this, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then because he had no sin of his own, he was raised to life by the Father with great joy. And because we are joined to him by faith, we will not be cast out, but instead be gathered with him into the Father's house. And even after all that, our fears are not very different from the ones we read here in Isaiah 56. We fear death and all the implications that go along with it, like the loss of relationships and the suffering that attaches itself to death. We fear earthly insignificance. We fear separation. Jesus knows these fears and speaks to us 
words of comfort and assurance. When we fear death, he tells us that he has taken away the sting of death. When we fear insignificance, he tells us that we are children of the king. When we fear separation, he tells us that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Last thing, sometimes we wonder what God is doing. The world so often looks cloudy, depressing. Local, national, and global news is a continual drip of reminders that sin is a powerful force in this world. And it's not just out there, it's in here, in our own hearts also. And whatever God is doing seems to take so long But God is continuing the work of verse eight, the work of gathering. Because as he says in John 10, I have sheep that are not in this pen. He is gathering the lost in his timing amidst the rise and falls of empires and cultural pressures. And we know that none will be lost and every single person that the father has called will be included in his house. And we know that we will feast in this house. Let's pray. Father God, help us to live like this is true. Help us to see your love and your word and your face in the face of Jesus. Help us to love what you love and to long for what is truly good in this life. And when we do come to die, help us to grasp onto the hope that we have in you, that nothing we have experienced so far can compare with what is held for us in heaven, a place and a name that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept safe by the one who holds all things in his hand. Amen.